0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
1: Three people and you're going to have four weeks, do something.
2: (laughs) It started out of pure
0: stubbornness, which is great.
3: Without necessarily meaning to,
0: I think we found this quite interesting niche.
4: No, we did some stuff, and the fact that it's invisible means it works.
0: <laughs> I think art is
1: encoded knowledge and uh, experience. At that time, we were really fascinated by the whole transmedia concept.
2: That was it, not the time-travelling robot idea that we had.
0: Hello, I am Sam Fry and welcome to Technique, the podcast where we speak to artists about technology. In today's episode, we are focusing on data and how we feel about having data about us stored in many separate places across the internet. Some people are calling this the data you, but how many versions of you exist online? And how true is that data? These are some of the questions that the Open Data Institute have been exploring. To do this, they have been working with artists to explore these questions through a series of projects, installations, performances and events called Copy That, surplus data in an age of repetitive duplication. So, in today's episode, just like the last one, my co-host Richard Adams speaks to Alistair Gentry, Harmeet Shagakhan and Mr G, some of the artists involved in Copy That, alongside the curator Hannah redler And that's where we'll start, with Richard asking Hannah about the exhibition.
3: As curator of this, can you tell us a little bit about what Copy That is as an exhibition?
2: Yeah, so it came out of the Open Data Institute data culture program, which as you've mentioned commissions artists and exhibitions. And we started researching the notion of the myth of the perfect digital copy about two years ago in 2018. And we were really interested in how when digital products, whether that be art or, or content or you know, photographs, started becoming more and more ubiquitous and accessible and creative by everyone in this side of the globe certainly there was an awful lot made of the fact that digital was unique because it created perfect infinite copies anyone who works with technology realizes that that's not entirely true in terms of how technology reproduces itself and in terms of you know how videos interpolate and how glitching and error and mistakes are absolutely central to what digital technology is you know what it formerly is and we found that really really interesting and the more we pushed the idea around which we did through a series of workshops paid workshops with artists as well as experts from the open data institute the more we started to see that it was just a really big topic and what we've boiled it down to in this program of partnerships and projects is to sort of ask the question how true is the data you how many versions might exist online And when we look at the myth of the perfect digital copy and we look at the benefits and pitfalls of simulation, we start to question the trustworthiness of incessantly reproduced data and ask questions like what gets lost or gained in translation? How important are corruption or interference, you know, to creating and revealing true copies? And we asked a lot of other questions about internet health as well, which have to say we haven't fully answered because COVID, another health issue, interrupted our process.
3: Did the COVID actually physically interrupt the exhibition?
2: Well, we had an unusual process for this exhibition where Mm. we saw the first exhibition, which launched in February at the Open Data Institute headquarters, which were in Shoreditch at the time. That was seen for us as the midpoint of the research process rather than the end point and we were hoping to continue evolving some of the ideas with other artists other than those that are represented here today who had ideas that aren't currently represented in the program and yes we had to sort of put a bit of a lid on that because it
3: just wasn't possible. So what what were you aiming to do as a curator then?
2: We, We had proposals that sort of dealt with different elements of the overall theme that included sort of internet health and you know what sort of number and kind of copy should a healthy internet be able to sustain. We had a variety of different projects that sort of rift on the themes we've just talked about. You know, we're unusual because the Open Data Institute isn't an arts organisation. It's an innovation and research company. So we're in the privileged position of not necessarily having to follow a traditional exhibition structure and programme structure. So mm. while we do put regular exhibitions up in the office, and we regularly collaborate with organisations like FACT in Liverpool, or the v or other organisations where we can bring whole exhibitions, uh, co-curate projects, or send our commissions out, we don't have to continually follow a traditional exhibition pathway. And What we found over the years, you know, this this art programme launched with the Open Data Institute itself in 2012. But what we found over the years is that research is really central to what we do. And research is the place where a lot of the artists we work with meet a lot of the staff and a lot of the organisations we work with through the ODI. So It is a display programme, and it is a programme where we bring museum-standard, internationally recognised artists and projects into the ODI offices. But we also treat that programme as an opportunity for research and development. So Alistair Gentry, who's here... Was actually an embedded artist in residence at mm-hmm. the Open Data Institute in the R and D program for a period of nine months before he made the work that he's going to talk about here, at Box Trust TrustBot. Mister G was in a sense a summit artist in residence, and he spent time working with various team members at the ODI to formulate a series of new poems for the summit in 2018, and that evolved into being part of this research and development program and coming up with his new work. Bring me my fire truck, the new Jerusalem and Harmi Khan who's representing herself Ben Neal and Edie Jo Murray as a group of artists were part of a project that we commissioned through a partnership with the University of Southampton Data Stories Project and BOM in Birmingham Open Media in, in Birmingham which was again a research project so research is very much at the heart of these projects.
3: A lot of artists who explore technology, they do end up doing, I think, a significant amount more what you might traditionally call research. It's not something I think 25 years ago a data institute would have done particularly in the way well, you're doing this?
2: We like to think that we're yeah. working in the long and impressive shadow of Bell Labs and projects oh. like that and Xerox Park, where artists were brought in to be part of that innovation culture and part of that process of people encountering other practitioners who are doing wildly different things and asking wildly different questions and disrupting their own expectations. And that's as important for the ODIR programme as speaking to very general audiences who wouldn't necessarily think that data was a thing for them and will encounter some of the really important data questions through the work of these extraordinary artists. The show has existed as a physical show that obviously had to close Mm. because of COVID-19 and a physical show hopefully will reappear. But meanwhile, what's certainly there is now each of the artists with additional funding from the Open Data Institute, which we were really, really grateful for, have been able to evolve and develop their projects really significantly into online artwork. So there's now an online exhibition, Copy That's Up the Data in the Age of Repetitive Duplication, on our ODI Data Culture website.
0: It's at this point that Richard begins to speak to each artist about their work. So the following is a set of conversations with Alistair Gentry, Hameet Khan, and Mr G. Later, he will bring them together with Hannah Redlerhaus to talk about some of the main themes. So, I'll hand you back to Richard. First, introducing Alistair Gentry.
3: If I turn to Alistair first, I mean, I read on a bio, you, you
1: call yourself um, the science fiction artist. Yeah. That <laughs> had, that's the thing that I've adopted. It was a Wikipedia mistake. <laughs> I had a page as a science fiction artist and a, as a science fiction writer. Ah. And I had a page as an artist and they got amalgamated. And in the process, I became a science fiction artist, and I just like it. Describe yourself on that as living in the uncanny valley, I think, or something. Yeah, I love when <laughs> technology goes wrong, not just because it delights me artistically, but also because it shows that technology is fallible and that we can do things with it that the people who make it don't want us to do with it. Well, that's what your work in this exhibition's about, isn't it? It's about... Trust and
3: and justification of trust.
1: Yeah. So as as Hannah said, I was researching for about nine months with the ODI, and I ended up making a thing called Doxbox Trustbot, which it's a pretend AI, it's a puppet AI. It's a thing mm-hmm. that I was calling Tech Drag, which is it does involve wigs and dressing up, but the the, the real Tech Drag is that it's pretending to be technology it's enacting the traits of technology without actually being technology so it seems to be doing a lot of processing in the background but the processor is me which is like a lot of the kind of real tech solutions that we're being presented with they are presented as AI or uh, kind of very advanced. But, you know, you think of the example I always use is like voice assistants. There's legions of poorly paid people often in the developing Mm -hmm. world sitting and listening to those recordings. And they're doing the interpretation, not a big kind of AI sitting in a, a cooled warehouse somewhere. It's the same old legion of low paid, hidden often again non-white developing world people mm. who are doing that labor which is being called ai so i
3: mean in a way as as uh, hopefully standards of living and things increase in, in in those economies which they are doing overall that's going to kill that industry in a sense isn't it so there's a race on for ai to actually become good enough to do it
1: <laughs> yeah there is but the other thing that i was always really interested yeah. in is how Kind of that, on kind of Californian tech bro ideology, is kind mm. of really deeply embedded in a lot of the discussions about AI and how we trust technology and who we trust with our data and the very personal things. The fact that you know the, the smartphone is now ubiquitous in the developed world and even in the developing world too. And it's mm. this snitch in your pocket, you know there's like this constant push to expand the reach of what these companies know about you and what they can do with it, but there's not a corresponding push for education of no, people I've, so I've, that they can it's interesting you come to the education of people. So i 've seen people
3: shocked when i've shown them that Google Maps in their pocket is actually producing a daily map of where they 've been, yeah, unless you switch it off.
1: Docsbox yeah. will see it sits basically it interviews people about the technology that they use or the apps they use. Okay. And then it is able to tell them where their data is going, where the data centers are, what those apps know about them, and then it goes on to tell them a little story in each a a personalized story with about what the effects of that might be either for them or for somebody often with less privilege than them. it's like it might, might be OK for you to say, oh, I don't care if I get tracked. But if you lived in another part of the world, you might have very good reason to fear being tracked. Look at, you know, the United States would be an example, you know. The LGBT people are out and that kind of information can be very dangerous in the wrong hands. Or if you travel to another country and you are out in your own country, that data being available freely can be very dangerous to you. We only I have mean to you've... how disproportionately women are mm. treated badly on the internet in terms of misogyny and threats and just the general attitude towards them speaking out on virtually any subject, the policing of their appearance. So, all, again, these are things that it, it's all right for, like, you know, somebody like Mark Zuckerberg in Silicon Valley to say, I don't mind my appearance being criticised, but it's different if you're, you know, a 14-year-old Asian girl in Mumbai or whatever, so that's what DocsBox is about it's about exposing to people the kind of things that you were talking about it's just like just be a bit more informed and you have a right to know how the information about your life is being used what were people's reactions to it well yeah I mean before it went on online I was always doing it face to face so people Mm. would sit and face a physical box which was the you know the home of the AI. Oh can With, I just say shocking pink as well isn't it? Yeah and again it's designed <laughs> to look a little bit like a piece of sort of Japanese street furniture or a vending yeah. machine very explicitly designed to to use the same techniques that apps use and games use to disarm people and kind of mm. overcome their resistance and sign sort of you know it's like push this button don't push this button so the reaction generally has been shock actually you know just like even just giving people a quick rundown of what facebook knows about them it fills up a whole page and all of these things are just from their terms and conditions which you could read if you wanted to but nobody ever does so all of this information i'm giving to people is freely available it's just nobody knows Do you think you've made people learn anything from it? Because it's quite interesting that a lot of
3: art of the moment that that is using technology in the network and all of this is
1: actually subtly very educational. Well, none of my work is explicitly educational, but actually, you know, Hannah can maybe talk a bit more about this as well. I'm taking part in a study with King's College London, which is exactly about how people change their minds about subjects or difficult or complex issues as a result of having engaged with artworks so DocsBox is part of that study and people do people do say at the end of it would you know what I'm changing my passwords one of
3: the criticisms you could have thrown at computer art in the generation I started with I mean I started with computer art in about 1990 and as you went through the 90s you could quite justifiably say that's really clever that's very pretty but it doesn't give you a gut punch what you don't really feel anything from it whereas I think the art we're seeing now emerging on your own is starting to make
1: people think but crucially feel yeah and that's that's the difference to me between something that's design design is great but design doesn't necessarily change the way you see the world I think art even if it does in a small way it changes the way you see the world you know you feel uplifted or you feel sick with worry or you you feel something and you feel differently because of having interacted with that work so that's really important to me in the work that I do is that it's not just a pretty blinking lights digital installation yeah again yeah i think like you say a lot of those works and there's still a lot of work like this to be honest that it's kind of their great technical achievements Mm. But I'm not sure they're achievements of art, they're achievements of something. A big array of LED lights is not making me feel anything, you know. Art makes you feel, art changes you. If
3: if we could turn to Harmeet now, your work, Mood Pinball, is actually sonic and it's aimed at neurodiverse people, autism, ADHD, those sorts of things. Could you tell us a little bit about the piece?
4: I'm one-third of Mood Pinball team. It was made with me and Ben Neal, who's a creative technologist, and Edie Joe Murray, who designed all the visuals. And we were asked by ODI and the University of Southampton to work with a group of neurodiverse individuals to kind of re-examine how we could look at the city and use data to create a playful piece of work. So mood pinball in its physical representation is a real life pinball machine and what you do when you play is you're playing the game as Edie Joe Murray who's a neurodiverse artist in the form of a ball uh, as you travel around this playing field which is the city of Coventry which is where she lives you go through various parts that are represented within the playing field of the game which is like you could hit the park or the gallery or the city and as you hit those spaces it triggers off the noise data in those spaces and they affect your mood so the idea is that you want to stay happy so you don't want to reach a space where you're overloaded with sensory noise so you want to try and see if you can get the pinball into a into the park space but of course the game is random because it's a pinball machine and I think the really interesting thing about the physical game is that we had so many people once it went into exhibition telling us that when they played the game it made them feel really calm like they actually it affected their well-being and normally when you play games you know and pinball machines and the kind of old computer games that we used to have in the arcades they would jeer you up with lots of adrenaline and make you feel really well, well
3: they were designed to get you excited
4: Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and I think part of the brilliance of Mood Pinball is the way it's been designed with this cyberpunk aesthetic that Edie Jo Murray brought into the picture, kind of representing how she feels as a neurodiverse person, which is that she kind of feels like an alien in the city. And also one of the really early kind of findings when we were in our workshop process was, I mean, it was a big moment of re- revelation for me because I'm neurotypical. But actually it was that the world as a user experience is designed for neurotypicals basically and if you are anything but that then it's constant negotiation and workaround so you end up really saying that the world is othering people all the time and that's fascinating like these kind of like the details when you're trying to make a piece of work you know and actually how can you turn this into something that people will keep on playing where's the repeatability
2: Mm.
4: we were really just trying to make something that was you know really playful what we we found loads of pitfalls actually in designing the game in making the piece of work which was that The kind of things that you would think that you would need to know when you're designing a city, right, or the world around you. Those kind of noise data, you know, all the noise levels and the data that you need that we didn't have. So actually the academics at the University of Southampton had to synthesize the data sets. For us as well, we could have looked at this from so many angles. You know, it wasn't just about noise in a city. You know, we could have chosen light and we could have chosen... Mm. uh, the movement of people within a city so like the crowds you know all, all these kinds of things that affect people who are neurodiverse and actually even if you're not I mean who likes to go shopping at Christmas nobody when there's just constant crowds of people everywhere it's, it's overwhelming so actually once we made the physical game and people were playing it and they they actually kind of reported anecdotally that they were feeling much calmer you know kind of come, come, come away feeling really chilled out we were like this is amazing. This is really great that it's had the kind of effect we really wanted it to have, but we didn't know, we weren't engineering that. That wasn't part of the master plan. And I think what's really interesting for us now having gone through, you know, the lockdown and COVID-19 mm. is that when Open Data Institute asked us to reconfigure it so that it could be it could be played online, so it's now a downloadable app and it's also played as a web browser version. We didn't realize how many of those kind of like latent issues would come up. But we kind of interpreted in a different way, like, you know, everyone went into lockdown and actually everybody's freedom of movement was restricted. And actually the city space is probably far nicer for it, you know. So we started asking these kind of higher concept questions around like, well, what happened if the city would would be designed to increase social capital? You know, Mm -hmm. if we put people back in the centre rather than retail or commerce, you know, what, what would the city look like then? What does it mean when we're designing things that, you know, city spaces, public spaces around a monetary value? Well, there
3: are a lot of debates going off now, aren't there, about refilling the city centres with people and with habitation and shops rather than businesses because they're not able to let the business space anymore. Mm, So, you know, now's a perfect time really to do that. Talk to me a little bit about the sounds, though, the sound and the aesthetic of of, of the pinball, because you mentioned cyberpunk for the look of everything. But talk to me about the sound itself. What is it?
4: So the sound again, I would say, is composed by Art Bell, and it's again, it's a futuristic soundtrack. It goes really well. It's quite deep and bassy, but it, it suits the aesthetic of the pinball machine really well.
3: So it's not traditional instruments or electroacoustic music, or yeah,
4: absolutely electroacoustic yeah. Mu- music, and it kind of marries this whole idea about you know this space where you're an alien in the city. So really, kind of linking Edie's visuals in with the soundscape to kind of make people feel like it's another world when actually it isn't. It's just a city that you've always lived and and traveled through and that was really important to kind of marry those two things together.
3: I think that's an interesting function of a lot of art though isn't it? It takes often the ordinary and reinterprets it in a way that makes you surprised.
4: It gives people the opportunity to kind of re-examine those familiar spaces like We are always on autopilot. Whatever Mm. we do, wherever we go, we're on autopilot. You know, we've got these built-in behaviours that take us through the day. And we never really get the opportunity to stop and see them with different eyes or with different ears. And in a way, I think that's what mood pinball does. It goes, what happens if you're a pinball, but you're representing this neurodiverse artist? How does the sound make you feel? What happens when you keep hitting the train station and your the noise levels are going up and your emojis looking more and more sad? You know, you kind of you're invested in a different way, but it's all through the gaming mechanic of this piece of work.
3: I, th- I think it's interesting isn't it? because it's often said to people, you know, in cities, you walk around a, a city or the environment, you should look up more. It's an old trope and it's a cliche, but actually, when you start to look up, you see things you'd never really noticed. And similarly, I think audio, you get so attuned and and our hearing actually, incredible, because we filter actively as we're going around and can focus on what we want to listen to. I remember trying um, hearing aids because I was learning sign language and teaching deaf students. And I was amazed that all the sound was the same level suddenly so somebody moving a chair was a huge noise and we with hearing were filtering that i'm not neurodiverse in that sense i'm neurotypical but you get a sense from doing something like that of what it is like to be neurodiverse
4: we learned so much from this project and, and that whole idea of how do you experience life really important here because we all experience it differently we could all be in the same space right now one day yeah. and we we'll all have different subjective experiences of that reality. And that's something that we kind of take for credit that actually we don't realise. We're all having really unique experiences, even if we were all standing in a line in the same space, you know. And the sound, one of the really early exercises in the workshop process was we asked the group to go out into the city to look at ways of how they would redesign it. And even asking the group to do that, some of them were going out with ear defenders because actually they knew that it was a really challenging process. You know, this sound was going to be an overload. Um, Another person was going around geocaching as a way of kind of going, well, I need to do this task because actually this is really important to this process. And it was fascinating actually, because if you're neurotypical, you have a choice of how you want to receive all of this information around you, right? You can choose to just walk down the street Or you can choose to stick your headphones in and plug into, you know, your Spotify or to the tunes on your phone or whatever. But actually, if you're neurodiverse, you are always going to probably be thinking of a way around it or choosing the path that takes you around a space that is the least crowded or has the least amount of sensory information that you have to process these things we take them for granted but they make us understand how we can make better spaces for people and the experience in moving ball I think really brought that to the forefront for us what we realized afterwards was the game is relevant to everyone you can play the game and you can play it for five minutes or 15 minutes or however and you can walk away from it and still just enjoy it as a game but actually to be able to kind of get people to think about how they can create change. I think that's quite important. You know, how do you want people to feel when they experience your art? And for me, and I know certainly for Ben and Edie as well, we want people to be left in a state that's more positive after they finish than when they've started. So the the provocation is subtle. And I think it's about asking people to question the space and the environment that they live in and what relationship they have with that. And I think certainly now more than ever, people are questioning that, you know, COVID-19, everything that's happening in the world, people are going, how, how on earth are we living and what does this mean for everyone around us, not just me in this city, but everyone else, people that are completely different to me, what does it, what does it really mean to live in the world today?
3: That's as good a place as any to move over to our third guest, Mr G. Hi, Mr G. How are you doing, Richard? All right. Looking you up and looking at your profile, you know, you've been pretty well recognized. You've got BAFTA recognition, TV shows, uh, among other things, port material for this session that I received. You've described yourself as performance poet.
5: Yeah, I think for me, all things start off with a poem. Even the work that I developed, Bringing My Fire Truck, it initially started off as just being a poem in reaction to Brexit. So that's my genesis, as it were where I started off being just a tiny little guy writing poems and performing them. And then that got me onto radio, that got me onto you know a certain mm. degree of television. And I would say the world's my oyster. Let's just <laughs> say the, the world is my stanza, you know?
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but it is interesting that you've talked about two different themes in the last two pieces. And your theme has been about the soul of Brexit. And I'm interested in seeing those two words, soul and Brexit, put
5: together. The whole yep. thing started off. I was, I was just going to write a poem about Brexit. And as mm. you said, I was feeling rather soulless at the time and trying to evoke something to capture what is a historic moment, whatever your opinions of it are. Mm. I figured, you know what? Let me, let me look into the classics. I'm a big fan of William Blake. I always have been. And so I just found myself looking through different Blake poems. And then I just, the idea of the Jerusalem poem. I thought, let me have a look at that again, because I've always admired the poem as opposed to the song. The whole, I suppose, credo behind copy that was the idea that you could have a copy and the copy might not be 100 percent a facsimile of the original. Yeah. And in many ways, the song of William Blake's Jerusalem is not 100 percent facsimile of the original poem. Because if you look at the actual poem, there are certain lines that have question marks. So they're asking questions. So it's, and did those feet in ancient times? Mm. It's got a question mark. When you sing it as a song, it becomes a statement. And did those feet in ancient times? So that slight change of nuance creates a myriad of ways of interpreting what was originally written. And so when I started looking at it, I just thought, this is seen as being what they call the unofficial English and national anthem. Mm. So they, they sing it when England play the rugby. It comes out in times of great occasion, and it's seen as being a very jingoistic rallying of the troops, as it were, and it has been used in the run-up to the Brexit vote. But I was thinking to myself, how is this thing that is so quintessentially English, how would it be viewed in other languages by other people, Mm. especially around diverse nations of the EU? So I started punching it in and out of Google Translate. And I actually started doing this, I think it was around either late 2016 or early 2017. I'd actually had the idea a long time ago, and I was going to turn it into just a piece of performance poetry where I would take certain lines and then use them. And so I found that when you started putting it into Google Translate and then back out again, slight words would change. Very, very, very slight words would change. So green and pleasant land becomes are we comfortable in England's Greenland or something like that? So each time would be a very slight change. So then I thought, why don't I take this translation? So let's say I translated it into French and then back into English. I thought, why don't I take that mistranslation and then translate it back into another European language, let's say Italian, and then back into English. And then the variance started to occur and I realized, oh, wow, this is quite funny. This is actually quite funny because... (laughs) We're viewing this thing one way, but it could be possible that there are people from other nations that are viewing this thing another way. And so I just started playing around with it, playing around with it, playing around with it. And then eventually there were certain configurations that really, really shifted because I found that if you started bouncing it around the Latin based languages, you don't get much variation. But if you start bouncing from a Latin language to a Slavic language to a Scandinavian language, then you start getting much more sway. And we also decided to include the Irish language, Scots, Gaelic and Welsh to then see how does Ireland view England? How does Wales view England? How does Scotland Hmm. view England? And so again, by doing that, because those languages, you know, the world, they go back to almost the beginning of time, the shift of the poem, once they're brought into the Welsh language and back or into Scots, Gaelic and back, it changes quite dynamically. And so I just thought the the best way to display this would be as an airport arrivals board. It just required a lot of, I guess, like conceptualizing and thinking, because I was just thinking to myself, I want the poem to be up there. And I want the idea of these translations arriving as planes landing. So you'll get a plane coming in from Helsinki or from Athens or from Stockholm and it's bringing with it Finnish or Greek or Swedish and it's bringing with it a new translation. And so as you watch it, you'll see the William Blake original poems in English, then changing mm-hmm. to Finnish, then coming back into English again, then going into Greek, then coming back into English again, then going into Swedish, then coming back into English again. And... It's more an uh, exercise in just, I suppose, viewing how some of the words gain new meanings, some of them lose their old meanings, certain things that may not have meant much suddenly mean a lot today, certain things that didn't mean much back in the day mean a lot now. So for me, it's a, personally, it's a very fascinating way of displaying an idea of a poem in a way which goes beyond the initial idea of the poem.
3: Read before that people who can speak many languages have a slightly different take on meaning that is given to them by the extension into the other languages. And I found that out myself through, you know, I'm now reasonably competent in French, Dutch and English, that you can can say the same concept in different ways and you get a different understanding when it
5: reflects us back to the English. My dad's from Uganda, and Mm -hmm. I think the most classic version of that is that they have many different words for love. So the way in which a mother would say, I love her child, would be different to the way in which she says, I love her sister, would be Mm. different to the way in which she says, I love my aunt. It'll just be different. It's different ways of love because it's different types of love. When did you stop the process, if you like? So how many languages does it rotate through? And It rotates through 26 languages, which are the main languages that are spoken around the EU. We could have included the Swiss version of French and the Swiss version of German or the Belgian Mm. version of French and a Belgian version of German. But Mm. for simplicity's sake, we're just trying to deal with the languages that are the stock standard languages that are spoken around the EU. And it goes through them all because it's effectively an animation. And what happens is, is that by the time you get to the end, everything is pretty much unrecognizable. The only words that remain the same are England, Jerusalem, and God.
3: So how the does the re- meaning change then by the end, if there is any meaning?
5: Well, in some cases, there's one line which emerged which says, I understand the cloud. <laughs> when I first showed it at the Open Data Institute, within the data world, the cloud meaning in the 21st century has got a very, very different meaning than it did in Blake's 17th century London. So that emergence of saying, I understand the cloud. I remember someone came at the exhibition and looked at it and just goes, I wish I understood the cloud. And so that he picked (laughs) that line out for himself. The reason why it's called Bring Me My Fire Truck, instead of Bring Me My Chariot of Fire, when it went into German and came back, Rather than a chariot of fire, which is a, a metaphorical, metaphysical yeah. conceptual idea, it became a very solid construct based in reality of bring me my fire truck. When I That's saw quite, that, I just burst it's out. Quite love
3: funny, it. isn't it? I mean, it's interesting that there's a lot of humor in the change of words like that. You know, the, the person, the viewer said about the cloud, I, I, you know, that was my thought when you said it. Do you see there's art or poetry?
5: Or do you think they're the same thing? I think it's the same thing now. I really do sort of coin this phrase of describing myself as a data poet. And I just see that in the same way in which the the printing press revolutionized poetry to then become into books, in the same way in which audio brought poetry onto radio and cameras brought poetry onto TV. I think that poetry is the soul of human beings. It is Mm. our expression of the divine. It's us trying to make sense of the unknowable. And, I definitely from especially working with the ODI, I can see so much congruency between the way in which a poet thinks and the way in which a data analyst thinks. It's knowing the unknowable. So I tend to find that when I speak to people that are very deep, deep, deep into tech, what they're doing is is they're taking loads and loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of inputs. Right. They're harvesting, farming this huge bats of data, and they're trying to find through points for which they can extrapolate ideas which can then help a problem that they're trying to solve and if you imagine what a poet would do a poet is going through this world taking in loads and loads of inputs loads of sights loads of sounds conversations that they heard 20 30 years ago smells that they smelt yesterday tastes of food that they tasted when they were a little child and they're taking all this information and they're rummaging it around their brain and they're trying to find something that makes sense of a problem that they are currently wrangling with And so the process is the same. We're all human beings. You know, Mm. we're dealing with the same kind of gray matter, as it were. The process of taking in information and trying to make sense of something in order to solve a problem, that process is very, very similar.
3: So did you uncover the soul of Brexit?
5: Yeah, I'm selling it for five ninety nine on my website. No, <laughs> I think what was interesting about this piece of work yeah. was that it originally started off as just an arrivals display board. It actually got its debut at the Tate Britain, wow. part of their Blake Now exhibition. It was actually shown on this big, huge screen. I think it was on the day Briggs actually occurred in January, the day of the handover, yeah. right? And then we were showing it, and it looks very good in the physical. Realm because people are used to just staring at arrival boards. That's one thing <laughs> I've noticed. They are, yeah. People just stare at it because when when I first exhibited it, I would just sort of stand by it and let people come and watch and they would just look and try and figure things out and they just go, Hmm, what's going on here? And then it'll take them a while before they ask me because they're very comfortable with the idea of just staring at an arrivals board. Obviously with COVID, everything changed because no one's gonna really just stare at an arrivals board on their laptop for that mm. long. So what we did is in order to try and create it to be a more dynamic experience, we then created different sections where we had we had a section called baggage reclaim, which is where when you click on that, you then go into this area where you see all these different pieces of luggage, which have got a flag on them. And when you click on that flag, you will then see a person from that country reading out the poem, first in their own language, and then the English translation or English mistranslation. Ah, okay, And then... We've got another section called Lost Luggage, which is where we start taking verses from all these different um, performances of the poem and we mix them all together. So the first verse might be in French, the second verse might be in Slovenian, the third verse might be in Italian, the fourth verse might be in English, my one. And so what that then created is that like rather than it being this sort of like harsh critique on Brexit And the limitation of the movement of people, it actually showed a more gentle connection of people. Because when you see someone reading the poem in their own language, they bring a lot of warmth and a heart and a humor and almost a melancholy in some cases to the poems themselves, rather than you just reading the text and hearing it in your own voice with your own mind. So COVID forced us to become a more online experience, but COVID brought out the soul of Brexit just by listening to the different native speakers reading this poem in their own tongue and with their own interpretation. And when you see it, it becomes something completely different.
3: In the past, I don't think a lot of computer art has brought feelings to the fore, but I think these three pieces do, and they do it in a very interesting way in that it's possibly the coldest, hardest, unemotional thing you could have, a data set. And yet you're actually, all three of you, moving people in different ways. Now, how you feel about that? The fact that the exhibition has brought three such disparate works together that have all served to move people. I don't know who wants to
1: take that first. Well, I could maybe speak about that because I did a lot of research on that. Mm. And this is one of my kind of starting points is that data is not neutral. You know, the way it's collected is not neutral. Again, the infamous, famous, infamous example is AI's being trained to recognise faces, but their data sets were white faces. They had to disable that function publicly because it was it was labelling black and Asian people as as gorilla and and monkey because it had been trained exclusively. You know, which is obviously revolting and just highly racist. But it never even occurred to them that that would happen because they're so in their bubble of. Well, yeah, data means collect, you know, faces means white faces. And and no data set is neutral because Mm -hmm. people are choosing what data to collect, in what manner to collect it, who is in, who is out, what is in, what is out. So this is something that I, I was kind of really concerned right from the beginning to expose. It's just the idea that data is neutral or technology is neutral, I think is completely false. You know, the idea that feelings don't come into data is completely false. I think these are things that we should be up in arms about. Yeah, I think anger is one of the things that you can and should feel from art. And like you say, a lot of technological art has not made you feel anything. So I'll take anger as well. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to be constructive as well. In my work in DocsBox, I give people suggestions as to what they can do. You know, when they say, oh, I feel hopeless, there are suggestions in it, it's okay, you can do something about this these are the rights you have this is what you can do this is what you can change this is a small thing that you can fix in your own life to make this a bit better for all of us again that's really important to me in the work I'm doing is that you're not just throwing these ideas out there and abdicating all responsibility for them you know the things we make we're responsible for as an artist everything I make I feel responsible for so I feel like the people who make this technology should feel that too.
3: Yeah, they just seem to be a disparate thing where they, they don't seem to want to acknowledge their own responsibilities. Yeah. Build the platform and then
1: you use it. It's what you do with it is up to you sort of it's, thing. Again, it? it's so common. as Silicon Valley tech bros Oh, we just make the technology. We don't, it's not for us to judge. No, yes, it is. You made it. You are the parent of that thing that you're putting out into the work. And like any parent, you can't always control what they do, but you are responsible. It's a similar
3: thing to what meat I'll paraphrase you here, I mean but what you were talking about with the, the fact people are building
1: spaces and doing things and not thinking about how it is for everyone. They're just going for the typical. But we also want and need digital spaces that are for everyone too. I don't think there should be digital spaces that are exclusionary, you know, any more than there are in the real world. We need spaces online that are inclusive of disabled people and mm people who are minorities and people who are not minorities you know it's even classifying is ridiculous to me you know we should be building spaces that work for everyone and just saying oh i built the platform and i'm not responsible for it's just total cowardly ridiculous pathetic abdication of responsibility you know but that's why it's very important to have like a i guess you know for one of the better phrase a more
5: diverse inclusion within mm-hmm. the tech industries and within the different levels of the art industries. Because, say, the piece I've got, Bring My Fire Truck, when we wanted to recruit all the different EU languages to then record the poems, naturally, I'm reaching out to my family first. I got family in Sweden, i got family in Spain, i got family in the Netherlands. And so just by that natural inclusion of people, you then get a more representative view of Europe. So you will see people who are black, who are Asian, who are from the, all the different spectrums of color the, on, the, on the planet, as it were. That's not even a, a, a programmed thing or a pre-programmed thing. That's just a natural occurrence from mm. the people that I was asking, yo, I need you to record this video for me now. You know what I'm saying, right? And so that naturally occurs within my my natural networks. And so I think that like, when it comes to designing tech, when you're going to be dealing with big cities... Where most big cities, the representation of people from all over the world has to be thought about in the technology that serves that particular place.
3: If you asked people what the tech team
1: was in London, they would pretty much come up with a white version of it. As G says, it's because yeah. there are such, such overpowering structural problems that often the mm. people. Who are in the room, you know, they you can look around, they they will look around the room and it's like, does anyone in the room have a problem with this? No, because they're all the same. If there was a black person in the room or there was a gay person in the room or there was, you know, a disabled person in the room, they'd say, you know, hang on, yeah, actually, this does affect me. You know, it might not affect you guys, and I use the word guys deliberately, but this technology (laughs) does affect me. And people like me. I
3: mean, Well, I'd like to hear your opinion on that. It's at the root of a lot of our sort of work, isn't it?
4: Yeah, and, you know, the the thing is generating so much data, you know, it's everywhere, and it has so currency attached to it, you know, and to assume that we can trust it or that it isn't inherently biased. I think people only are starting to realise that, and that naivety has come through this kind of perception that anything that's technology is going to be filled with truth and actually it's when big things happen it's when the big scandals happen you know the big things arrive in the mainstream that we really get the opportunity to look around and go oh hang on a minute actually, this is not right that our data is being used in this way. It's not right that actually it's not representing people who are not getting access to work in you know the tech industry properly, That it's that it's showing up the disparities between gender, race, sexuality, class, you know, all those things. But it almost takes a huge kind of moment. Yeah, it's a tipping point, isn't it? We kind of ignore it because technology is useful to us and we're addicted to it and we love it. And then when we hit this tipping point where actually we go, hang on, no more. It's disgusting that this is happening. It's wrong that actually people are being profiled or that actually people are being judged on the color of their skin or how much money they have or what politics they choose to align themselves with. We don't reflect in that way until something happens that makes it really obvious. We're not used to using the mirror in that way. So I think what I've kind of come to is I wonder if there's a way of feeding the machine to looking at can we create value-driven code actually represents the multiplicity of 7.2 billion people <laughs> rather than just we're assuming it's for, only for one lens or this one size fits all.
3: It's the tyranny of the majority, isn't it, in the sense? You set things up and you, you take the majority from within the structure you've got. And then you build everything around that majority and suddenly the minority never get a look in. And Brexit, you know, happened with that in that there wasn't a majority of adults voted for it, but there was a majority within the system as it was set up voted for it. And that's similar with elections generally. And and so you end up with something that a minority actually voted for.
5: I've got a line in a poem that says you can't solve a Rubik's Cube by only completing one side.
2: Um, I'd say that's something really important about the mm. Data as Culture programme. Data as Culture as an art programme was one of the first things that the Open Data Institute committed to doing when it launched in 2012. And although the Open Data Institute is a place that's a technology company, it works with governments, it works with companies to build an open, trustworthy data ecosystem. And it was all about people making better decisions using data. By very nature of being set up to do that, it's working with experts and it's working with the organizations that already work with data and that already make decisions about it but what the art program does is it it makes sure that questions come in that reflect The fact that data is located, that it's personal, that it's visceral, emotional, you know, emotive, seductive, and that it also reflects the people who collect it and decide how it will be used. And so we've made it our business to try to bring in a multiplicity of voices. It's been a very open programme. A lot of the recruitment of artists has been open calls. But in fact, we did find that in the first couple of years, the sort of people applying for those open calls were of a type. So we Mm. did ask questions of ourselves and we consulted artists from different perspectives and different ethnicities and attitudes to say, what can we do to to be better because this isn't good enough?
3: How do you find diverse artists, by the way, working with data?
2: I mean, I've been a curator for nearly 30 years and where artists aren't applying for things that I'm part of, I'll put the word out and speak Mm. People and speak to my networks and have conversations with people who might not have thought an opportunity was for them. And that can be to do with data, it can be to do with any subject matter, to be honest. So there's also the sort of all the different identities we have as artists. So, you know, one of the first artists in residence who I brought in was a young photographic artist who never, ever, ever would have put herself into have applied for a data opportunity. And I guess, like, well, Mr. G, we were working together on another project. That wasn't yeah. related to the ODI at all, and he showed me some of his work, and there was a poem um, "Ticket to Fly," which is yeah. amazing. And um, I looked, and I was like, "Oh my god, that's so about data." <laughs> and, yeah. and because of the other project we were working on, I never would have connected G to data. And I was like, "Oh, would you come and talk to me with my other hat on?" And G was like, "Yeah, definitely." And you know, so
5: what was really good about that is that there's something that I never thought was going to be in my field ever. But the ODI very welcoming environment and they just gave me tons and tons of like like little literature to to read pamphlets so Nigel Shabot gave me his book The Digital Ape to Read and so again that's what I say to you the whole idea of an artist is you're taking in everything and I think the data tech industry has got a lot to learn from artists but yeah. artists have got a lot to learn from the data tech industry as well.
0: So much to all the artists that spoke in today's episode. It's a fascinating subject, and I love that notion about artists and technologists learning from each other. If you want to know more, then you can find out many more details online. Here's how
4: If you want to play Mood Pinball or you want to download the app version, then please head over to moodpinball.com. Uh, you can find all the stuff that me, Edie, and Ben have put together for the project. It's a beautiful website. It's kind of hot pink and different shades of magenta, and you'll see all the futuristic artwork, and you can play the game on there. And you can find work that I do, the, the storytelling, over at surfinglightbeams.com. We've got links to all of our all of our own work when we're not collaborating together on moodpinball.com. So Ben Neal's okay. work is on cyconlab.co.uk and Edie Jo Murray and her beautiful work is over on echo Thank you.
5: Mr. G. Yeah, if you want to see the art piece, bring me my fire truck. It's best to go to the ODI website and there'll be a link for it there. The web address is actually firetruck.theodi.org. And if you go there, you can see the artwork. You can click on little bits and pieces about me. And my Twitter and Instagram handle is at Mr. G Poet. So M R G E E P O E T. And you'll find lots of glorious, wonderful, stupid, trivial, and <laughs> inconsequential stuff about my good self.
1: Alistair, what about yourself? Just look for my name, Alistair Gentry, on Twitter or my website is alistairgentry.net. And look out for DocsBox TrustBot. It will be appearing all over the place now to grill you about your phone. And finally, Hannah, ODI.
2: So copy that surplus data in an age of repetitive duplication, which is curated by me with the artist Julie Freeman and the writer Anna Scott is um, available with access to all three artworks and more background at culture.theodi.org forward slash copy that forward slash.
0: Thanks again to Hannah Redler-Hawes, Alistair Gentry, Hamit Shagga Khan and Mr G for being in this episode. Thank you also for listening. If you did like the show, then please take a moment to give it a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We do this purely out of an interest in learning more about the arts, so we really appreciate the positive feedback. Also, if you haven't followed us already, you can find us on Twitter at Technique UK and on Instagram on Technique Podcast. We will be back again in a month's time with another episode. In the meantime, take very good care of yourself. Goodbye. Design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century putting humans at the heart of design, or does it? Isn't it just the post-it note workshops?
3: More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry
0: and where on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools and can it be used as a philosophy for the future? Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with
3: experts in the field on our first Technique mini-series about design thinking.
0: Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode.